Thank you very much, Pete. Uh, my name is George, and I am an alcoholic. And my sobriety date, uh, by the grace of God, is uh, April 18, 1979. That's a miracle, I'll tell you. <laughs> I... Uh, I'm planning to have a good time. I'm already having a good time. It started, uh, you know, I have just about nothing else but good times, and I think nowadays. And you know, when I came back to AA, I thought, oh my God, uh, I've had my fun, thank the Lord, but now I'm going to have to go in here and quit drinking. I'll have to hold on to that table and sit here and lift these old geezers with their tennis shoes and their rusty zippers and their trench coats. But I've had my fun, and I, that's how, that's, you know, that's second step work for me. That's how crazy I was. I told that story about five or seven years in the sobriety, and somebody said, look at you. There, I had tennis shoes on, there they are. I had a trench coat on. <laughs> Nobody checked my zipper, but you know what? <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing. Oh, you could have fooled me, because I really did think my life was over, and my God, my life was just beginning. Uh, this program, to me, is about walls coming down. You know, I heard some guy say in the Mustard Seed group this morning, that's our group, that's my home group, me and Suzanne, my wife. The thing I was supposed to tell you first, I, I got my instructions on the way down here, is that I found my wife, she's 18 years, 19 years sobriety now, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's a loving, sweet, kind woman who's the light of my life. Now, I'm supposed to say that that's her right there, Suzanne. <laughs> and I'm not kidding when I say that. It was It's a great blessing to be in the program together, you know, because we get up in the morning and we try to say the third step, seven step prayer every day. And I'll tell you, our days go better. You know, sometimes we forget, you know. But the days we do it, they go better. And I, I do want, all kidding aside, to say what a wonderful thing it is to share the program uh, with your wife. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, I, w I wanted to uh, tell you that I think humor is what uh, captured me. I, I came back into the program. I'll tell you how I got back in in a little bit. I ended up in a drying-out joint. I had to be carried in there. I went because they tapered you off in whiskey in this place, and the fellow said, you can go to the Charles Memorial Hospital and have uh, gastroenteritis if you know a doctor. He'll taper you off on drugs. Or he said, there's a, a place down here called Valley Clinic. They didn't have treatment centers there in Charleston in those days, and they taper you off on whiskey, and I said, let's go there. <laughs> you know, just, so I followed a drink of whiskey right into the program, and... Um, and to be perfectly frank, I, I cannot describe, words fail me, I cannot describe being in that bed, having to call and have a bottle of whiskey brought to me, hit it from the person who brought it to me, my cousin brought it to me, he said about every three minutes you'd run in the kitchen, I'd hear the paper rattle, you'd be mixing yourself a drink. He brought me the whiskey, and I hid it from him, and I was sick. And I was alone, and I cannot describe how alone I was when they put me in that dry now. But in that place, the only thing that did different, I said a desperate prayer. And I've come to believe that God always hears the prayer of a desperate person. And God obviously heard mine because something happened. Uh, a couple nights later, I, well, I wanted to tell you this first. I wanted to tell you that the humor, uh, about 90, less than 90 days in the program, they had one of these uh, roundups in Charleston. Somebody said, you ought to go to that. Well, I didn't want to go to that. It's a block away from my office. And I'd been in that motel running up and down the uh, hallways, you know, in the middle of the night in my underwear and one thing or another. And, and I was embarrassed to go over there sober with all those three or four hundred drunks, you know. That might damage my reputation. So I went in. I put my head way down in the, in the coat, and I'm sitting way back in the back. And Jim W. from Texas spoke. I'll never forget it. He got telling about how you know when you know you don't know you know, and he went on and on and on and on and on, and that got funnier and funnier and funnier. And these people were rolling in the in the aisle laughing, and I found myself laughing. And you know what I said? Hell, if they're having this much fun, I may as well join. You know, <laughs> that's what I think the humor it got me. I had no idea he had fun not drinking. Good Lord, you know. And uh, <clears throat> but anyway. It was a wonderful experience to be there that night. A lady named Joanne uh, from over in Baltimore. Thank God for these roundups and conventions. She said, uh, 
they told her if she would come in and just do the simple things that they suggested, that she'd find a higher power who would not, who would give her everything that she needed, would not put more on her than she could bear, and when she got into the program and started really working these steps, the time would come when she'd find out that's what she wanted all her life anyway, that this power would do that for her. And I thought, good Lord, I had tried so hard to get a spiritual connection. That spiritual connection on that particular day, within 90 days back in the program, I could live with. And I loved it. You know, I absolutely loved it. I started drinking about 14 years of age. My dad uh, was an Irish man, fiddler, in World War One, and he liked to drink whiskey. My mother hated whiskey. The men would all go upstairs Thanksgiving and wash their hands before Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas. And uh, then they'd go up about ten minutes later and wash their hands again. And the little old kid, I thought, God, this is a cleanliness bunch of nuts, you know. <laughs> but the time came when I found out why they were going up to wash their hands. So the women wouldn't know they were drinking whiskey. We hid it in our life. I, I'm finally came, I got to go up and wash my hands with them. That was a landmark in my life. <laughs> Bell told me just the other day, he said, uh, let me tell you what, I worked with your dad. He said, your dad had a, 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 a cure for the common cold. And I said, he did? Yeah, he said, Albert uh, Aldority, that was his name, great Irish man. I loved him dearly, had a lot of fun with him. And uh, I miss him. He's my, he was my dad, and I loved him. And he said, Al said one morning, he said, what you do is when you got a cold, you just pour a glass about halfway full of whiskey and drink it. Then you don't give a damn whether you got a cold or not. <laughs> well, that's the way I looked at life. You know, that's the way. And that's what I did. I went around every problem that I ever had with whiskey. Just the biggest escape artist is what I was. I'll never forget the first time I was 16 years old, got to go out of town with a car. I was supposed to take my cousin Dana down to Marshall. College in those days, and it was 60 miles from Elkview. And uh, we got down to Joe Christian's beer joint and had a couple of beers. I'd been drinking for a couple of years, but that time I started when I was 14. And uh, after having a couple of beers, I was to drive him to the St. Albans city limits and let him hitchhike on the Huntington. Well, it's about 20 miles from Joe Christian's beer joint to the city limits of St. Albans and about 40 miles on the Huntington. Well, we had about two more beers. And, oh, my God, you know, we're so close to Huntington. Let's just roll right on in there. And we got down there <clears throat> to Huntington. First time I've ever been out of town in the family car. And uh, I met his fraternity brothers. And we started hitting the beer joints. And uh, we left my car there. And along about uh, 10.30 or 11 o'clock that night, uh, I said goodbye to them. They said, come down and visit us, you know, and all that. Oh, I'll do it, you know, and all that. Turned around to go home in the car, and I, oh, my God, they, where's my car? <laughs> They'd let me out, and I very dramatically said goodbye and had no idea where we left that car. I must have run 20 blocks to catch those guys. I don't know what I'd have done. And then they didn't know either. We had to drive all over Huntington to find that car. <laughs> but I learned a song that night. <laughs> I've often thought if I could remember my studies in college as well as I remembered all those songs we learned late at night, you know, I'd have been Phi Beta Kappa. I was moved to this by Bill Wilson's uh, doggerel, which uh, was on an old tombstone there at Winchester Cathedral. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier's never forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Well, I had a song. My song I learned that day, and it went, I'm a drunk Phi Kappa Alpha, and I like my Hagen Hag. I like my Johnny Walkers, and I like my lady's leg. <laughs> I get drunk on all occasions just to pass the time away. I'm a drunken SOB, but a damn good Pi K.A. <laughs> Heard that song one time, and I've never forgotten it. And it was kind of the story of the lifestyle that I loved. And I learned a lot of songs late at night. And I sang them. And I enjoyed it. Me and my cousin were standing up there at Elkview one day having a drink on Sunday morning. And he said, isn't that something? See all those people out there going to church and all that? They're going to have a boring day. And here we are having drinks about 10 o'clock in the morning. Isn't this a wonderful lifestyle? Aren't we the blessed ones that we're not going through life bored like those people are? And you know I believe it. 
I believe that same cousin told me, he said, just don't ever be the drunkest one at the party and you'll never have any trouble with whiskey. They always talk about the drunkest one, falls in the Christmas tree, don't do that. Drink like a gentleman. And I tried that as hard as I could for as long as I could. And I ended up in, in Valley Clinic. Uh, <clears throat> but I love the humor in the program. I, I, my very, one of my very favorite stories, I like these old geezers, you know. These old geezers just have this beautiful wit and wisdom and all that stuff. I loved Wino Joe. Heard Wino Joe on that tape, you know, and heard about his cat story and the biggest fruit salad in the world when he ran two trains to, to, to uh, trains together full of uh, fruit, you know, and all that sort of thing. You can't do it, but a drunk could do it. Loved Wino Joe. I told uh, somebody if Wino Joe ever speaks east of the Mississippi, I'm going to because I want to see what the man looked like. And I did. And boy, that was, uh, it was just, he looked exactly like I thought. I always wanted to see what plants he looked like. I, you know, you have in your mind's eye from hearing these wonderful tapes that they make, what they look like. And, and Clancy came to West Virginia to make a talk, and he looked exactly like I knew he was going to look like. Kind of tall and like John Wayne, you know, with the urbanity of Cary Grant and all that. <laughs> But you know, it's, it's, it's fun. <clears throat> Friend of mine I went to college with and drank whiskey with for years and years and years, got sober about a year after I did, and he worked up in Manhattan, and we'd go up there, you know. The first meeting he went to, the mustard seed, an old curmudgeon named Ralph. Ralph handed him the card and says, call me. So he called Ralph every day. And he's called him now for something like 18 years. Every day, Ralph gets mad if he doesn't call him. And Ralph is a kind of a disbarred writer. He used to write for papers and all that sort of thing. Now he writes freelance. He's been doing it for years because he's a marvelous writer and a marvelous talent. But he had trouble when he was drinking and, and all that, so he became a freelance man. Well, <clears throat> Ralph, for many, many years, went over to the answering service uh, at the uh, intergroup there in New York and answered the phone on Wednesday afternoon for three hours or something. And talk about God putting the right person in the right place. One day this lady called up and Ralph answers the phone. I mean, there's probably 20 people there answering phones, but this lady got Ralph. She said, sir, are there any vacancies in AA today? <laughs> Ralph said, why do you ask? Well, she said, my husband has been trying to get into AA for about three years now. And he tells me there are no vacancies. So Ralph, this is right up Ralph's alley. He says, let me have your number, ma'am. I'll be back with you in a few minutes. So Ralph uh, smokes a cigarette or two, looks in the directory. Of course, there's three meetings on every block in New York. You know how it is in Manhattan. And he find, he's got her address, you know, and he finds these meetings close to her uh, home and uh, uh, smokes another cigarette or two, called her back, and he says, ma'am, this is your husband's lucky day. <laughs> There are three meetings within a block of your apartment, and uh, I have called all three of them, and all three of them have vacancies. <laughs> so when he gets home, then I give him the good news. <laughs> yeah, one of them, in fact, is what we call an open AA meeting. You can go with him and share the joy tonight, you think. <laughs> you know... And I was going to be bored when I got with you all, you know. I was going to be bored, I'll tell you. It's been a joy. It's, I am the luckiest man. I, I don't like to say lucky anymore. I'm the most blessed man who ever lived. Because I'll tell you something, there was no joy in my life. I, I drank whiskey around every problem. I never knew. You know, things that you try. I tried to get a spiritual connection. I really did. I was trying hard. And that's why I brought handouts tonight. I wanted to, I'm going to leave some of these here. And I'd recommend you read this. This is the letter that uh, Dr. Young wrote to Bill Wilson. And uh, he points out that we were trying to find a spiritual connection. And ironically, we tried to find it in the most depraved poison. And yet the most sublime experience is also called spirit. So he says the helpful formula is spiritus contra spiritum. So I see now what I was trying to do. Uh, you know, literally, you know, with all the anxiety and the stress in my life, a few drinks of whiskey and hell nothing bothered me. And so it started kicking me in the head. You know, it worked for a while. And, and I could get holy as could be. I could feel at one with the universe. 
you know? Spirit. And I'll tell you, I'd recommend you read that letter. I'm going to leave a bunch of them here. Uh, I found I found that. I went up to the GSO office, and they had that on the wall, and I asked them if I could make a copy of it. And I suppose now they, you know, I'm sure they preserved that somewhere better. That day was in an old cheap frame, and they made me a Xerox copy. And uh, I'm going to leave a bunch of them here for you. Uh, that's serious stuff to me. Uh, I just did not know that you could literally look the world in the eye and face a problem and go through that problem and then look back and say, wow, it worked out okay. These steps work. What these sponsors and these old geezers have been saying work, you know, and I got through that. Now I've got something to tell somebody. I've got a story to tell. So that's the most valuable thing I have is my story. I can talk to somebody, and if I can remember not to preach to them, if I can remember to be a channel of God's love and not be somebody who goes and tells them what to do, and just tell them my story, you know what? Every now and then one of them gets up off a sickbed that no psychiatrist or preacher or anybody else in the world was ever able to get them up out of, and just because old George went and told them the story. And I'm... You know, you all told me, and I believe this, I'm not in charge of getting them up out of that bed. You know, the power greater than me is in charge of that. I'm just in charge of going and telling my story. The power of our stories. They are funny. And they are profound. And they have great depth. And I'm blessed to have an opportunity to come here tonight. And I thank Denny for it. And I thank Steve. And I thank... All these ladies, everybody who invited me, I want to remember to thank you. You've given me another day of sobriety. You've given me an opportunity to come here and just rattle along, and I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't have to know anything. I just have to come and try, as the lady said back here, said try to be honest. <laughs> and I'm trying. <laughs> and I thank God for that part. The most relieved guy in the world was when we got to that part said, we're not saints. We're settling for spiritual progress. What a blessing that man wrote that. You know, when you think about it, I went over, we went over to, to Akron. You know, Akron, of course, as you all know, is the capital of West Virginia. You know, Akron, Ohio. <laughs> so many of our people, including most all my uncles, went over there to work, you know, in the, in the rubber plants and all that. And I went over and looked at that little old table that Bill and Bob and Annie Smith sat around thinking that they had an idea that people have later described as probably the most profound psychological development of the 20th century. I believe that from the bottom of my heart because I know where I was. I was lost and alone and isolated. And as the lady said, talk about fear tonight. Or I always talk about fear because I can remember. I was scared of everything. And yet I couldn't let you know I was afraid of anything. You know who my heroes were? You tell a lot about a person by the heroes. Errol Flynn. <laughs> Dylan Thomas. Hank Williams. Sing those songs and just cry, you know. Hank Williams told Minnie Pearl, she said, you wrote that lovely song, I saw the light, and it's helped so many people, you know, get up out of a sickbed or get out of their spiritual morass. Why can't you do it yourself? He said, Minnie, I can't see the light anymore. And I've been there. I know what Hank Williams meant when he said, I can't see the light. Dylan Thomas had about six months of sobriety before he died. And during that time, he had a, a, a remarkable outlay of work. Good work. He finished under Milkwood. Uh, the great, uh, oh, uh, can't even remember his name now, the uh, opera uh, Stravinsky had asked him to write an opera with him. Everything was looking up. But you see, he was in Manhattan because he left his wife, Caitlin, over in Wales, had come to America to make some money so he could then go home and pay his bills and get the kids all back in school and everything like that. And then once he got all that taken care of, he could get back to writing poetry. Now that's the way I live my life. <coughs> I had no idea that you start out with a spiritual sort of a deal. And then you work from there 
and your work just follows naturally. See, Dylan just thought if he could get all the problems of the world straightened out, he could then do his work. And I didn't know any differently either. Had no idea. Dylan Thomas went into the White Horse Tavern. I've been there. And he said, I'll have 18 drinks. That's the world's record, you know. And the bartender said, are you sure you want to jump in here, Dylan? The water's real deep. He said, I just want to look at them. And he lined them up like a pyramid. And he started drinking. And he drank, and he drank, and he drank. Sidney Michaels wrote the play, and it's beautiful. It's all about us. And there was my hero. And he passed out and went into a coma and never came out of it and died. And all of those wonderful poems went with him. God himself only knows the output and the contribution to the world that Dylan might have made if he hadn't been an alcoholic. Or, I've often thought about this. This was in the middle 50s, about 52 or 3 that Dylan died. And do you know right around the corner was the most accessible man in the world? When I got back into AA... It was too late. Bill Wilson had already died. I started in the middle 60s. I could have met Bill Wilson. I didn't. After 11 months, I took a drink. So I never got to meet Bill Wilson. But Dylan, if Dylan had been lucky enough or blessed enough to have bumped into somebody who could have taken him to a meeting and could have had the chance to have what we all have been so freely given in spite of ourselves, God only knows what he might have done in his life. But the most important thing, he wouldn't have been alone anymore. No matter what he did, if he never wrote another poem, he would have had a joyful life. And that was my hero, Dylan Thomas. I got to play the role after I got sober. We played it up in Charleston, West Virginia. It's a great place. Sidney Michaels is not an alcoholic. I talked to him. How did you know he had family members who were alcoholics? I asked him how he could possibly capture the, the depth of the isolation and the fear of alcoholism as he did in that beautiful play. I played it because I didn't want to be Dylan anymore. I played it because I didn't want to be Errol Flynn anymore. I didn't want to be, you know, dashing and all that braggadocio because there's too much fear in that. So I, I played the part as a catharsis. We did it for $3 a ticket and gave away tickets if they couldn't afford it because we wanted to do it as a 12-step proposition. And God bless Jim Hearn. I'd tried to get people to do that show for years up in West Virginia. Jim Hearn worked in a treatment center called Shawnee Hills. And I said, Jim, we've got this play. It ought to be done to carry this message to our fellow alcoholics. And just like that, Jim went over to see his boss, and they said, we'll do it. And we played that show. And I don't know if it helped anybody else or not, but it sure helped George Doherty. Because I didn't want to be him anymore. My heroes now are people like you all, people like Clancy. This guy has gone all over the world and talked to people for years and years and years carrying this message. And he's a dynamic speaker. He's a guy who can move people. To want a better way. And I've heard the stories on the tape and I've heard him in person. And I'm here to say to you that I think the man is a giant of a man. And I want to be the kind of guy who recognizes a guy like Clancy and says, that's the kind of guy I'd like to be in my own humble, small way. Put it a little bit differently. I got back into the program in 1979. They carried me into Valley Clinic, really. And along about, I said a desperate prayer. And I'll tell you why I said, God help me, I guess I'm licked. I read uh, Chris Christopherson said that. <laughs> so I said it. One day later or two days later, I walked to the door of an AA meeting. Now, mind you, I've been there 14 years before for 11 months. Never worked a step. Never went to a conference. I was a half-measured guy. Somebody said, don't get into these steps too fast. A lot of a lot of people get drunk, getting too enthusiastic about it. I followed every half-measure you could believe. 
first thing a guy showed me was how to take the cover on the big book and turn it around so it's just white and nobody can see it and nobody knows you're in AA. So I turned mine around. Put it in the shelf. Fourteen years later, I read that book. Because I was desperate. But I'm standing in that doorway. Now, you look, you, you look at me tonight. I, I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm not totally sane, thank God, and I know it, but I'm healthy, and I'm happy, and I'm not full of fear, and I'm not isolated, and I'm among friends. I never felt better in my life than I do with this crowd right here, you know? But that night, I was alone. That night, I thought my life was over. I was beyond despair. Pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. That isn't strong enough. That's the language of the big book. You know what I'm talking about, three o'clock in the morning when the siren goes off and you know darn good well you haven't done anything and yet they're coming for you. You know? You all know where I was. I had puked on these green pajamas. You know, George Darley, actor, big time lawyer, all that crap I was trying to be. And I walked to the door of this meeting in this drown out joint, and there was an old guy standing over there, he took a look at me. And he had one of these faces that had been lived in. It looked like it had had pool rooms turned over right on top of it. And he had eyes that looked like Christ. He had eyes of love or Mohammed or whoever you want to believe in. He had eyes of love. And that smile, he came over to me and he said, Come on in, brother. You're in the right place. And I followed, God bless him, he's gone now to his God, Bill Rice, right into that meeting and sat down. I was trying to make a decision in that doorway whether to go take another one of those getting well drinks and go back to bed. If I had taken that drink and it, and it, it quit working, it wasn't taking hold at all, it hadn't been for several days. But I've often thought, if I had taken that drink and it took hold and I felt that false reassurance one more time, I'd have probably going back to bed and left that place the next day. But I followed Bill like a little helpless child, which I was, right into that meeting. Now, I want to be the kind of guy who doesn't criticize any of these people, like Bill Rice. I want to be the kind of guy, you know, you hear criticism, you hear gossip, you hear all these things that around AA sometimes. Not much, but I don't want to do any of it. I don't want to do any of it. I'm trying hard. I'm asking my higher power, help me get rid of negativity. I want to be the kind of guy, like Bill Rice, he's my hero, who stands there watching that doorway, not standing over here saying, oh, so-and-so, he's not working a very good program, and that one over there ain't going to make it, and you know, I've been telling them, and all that stuff. I find myself sucked right into that, and I don't want to do it anymore. I am so grateful Bill Rice wasn't over there gossiping. That Bill Rice watched the door. And that later on when I heard, you know, when somebody's suffering anywhere we want the hand of AA to be there, Bill Rice was there. Bill Rice gave me this book. Bill Rice lived in a little cell. It was like a monk's habitat. And he had his books to do his studies. And Bill Rice turned me on to Emmett Fox. And here's a man who lived on a small pension, very little money, and yet they will tell you at the Pilgrim's Progress Bookstore in South Charleston, West Virginia, that Bill Rice spent practically everything he had getting books for people in AA that might help them. This book, it's a daily reader, and it has meant the world to me. It helped me begin to understand this higher power that our big book talked about. It isn't contra big book. It's a, an add-on and all that. And Bill Rice gave that to me. I wrote some things in it over the years. One of them was Cecil T. said 1982. This 12-step program is designed to create in us a sincere desire to lead a better life. And Irv G. said, life's a banquet. I'm going to eat the whole thing. Good and bad. It is better than escaping. Herb is one of my dearest friends. He said that in 1982. He had five years of sobriety, started to work in a treatment center, helped all kinds of people, carried the message to all kinds of people. One day took a drink and he's still drunk. And he's the most 
miserable. He's the saddest guy. I pray for him every time I think of him. I'm praying for him right now. He lost it. He had it, and he lost it. That 11... But anyway, I want to be like these guys. Here's one right here. Fear you cannot learn away. W.C. said that. My friend W.C. You work these steps, and experientially... Things happen like Jim Williams said. You do these things over here and something over here happens. We don't know what it is or how it works. So you mean you're going to ask me to turn my life and will over to you guys who don't know? You do something over here and these steps and all that and something over here happens and you don't know what's going to be? So that's crazy. And they say, yeah. <laughs> and don't you forget it. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I laughed to Jim that night. And yet that's the way I'm leaving my life today. Johnny Coca-Cola gone now said, all you have to do is tap the power and follow directions. And a young lady named Suzanne S. said in August of 1982, love is the only reality. All else is distortion. You're going to hear that lady speak tomorrow. She's scared to death. She's a very quiet lady. She's a very dignified lady, a very sweet lady. She's my wife. And that lady said that in 1982. Love is the only reality. All else is distortion. God bless her. She said that across the table from me in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wrote it down. So I want to be like Bill Rice. I want to be like these guys. I want to be about my sponsor. My former sponsor's dead now, and I want to tell you something about him. For years and years and years, you ask anybody about Louis S. up in Charleston, West Virginia, they say, oh, you mean old Rule 62? <laughs> Louis gave these little cards away for years and years and years. And the cards say, in a bridge interpretation of Rule 62, don't take yourself too damn seriously. And everybody remembered Louis for that. Now, I want to tell you about Louis. Louis got sober in the early 40s. And he was sober for 28 and a half years. And while I was out there on that 14-year slip... <laughs> Louis took a drink. And when I got back, Louis had been had about five years coming back. And Louis said, George, once I took that drink, he was Mr. AA, ran a drying out place when they when the government came in with the you know the thing the government did, Louis set it up in West Virginia. He was Mr. AA. And he said, George, I took one drink. I kept it around the house in case somebody came by, you know, needed the drink. My son's in the program. My son said something I thought was beautifully proud. I'm sure everything we say we heard from some of you all. They said, you know, I don't keep a bale of hay around my front room in case a horse comes by. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my son, Dick D. That's also the son that... Uh, was making a lead one night. Now, I'm telling you, he's got about 12 years sobriety or so now, and I'll tell you something, you want to have an interesting experience, just go listen to your son make leads and share in AA. He was talking about watering the whiskey under the sink in our kitchen, and I thought to myself, my God, that's the same whiskey I was watering, so his mother wouldn't know. <laughs> that's the God's truth. <clears throat> Louis stayed drunk two and a half years after 28 and a half years of sobriety. And Louis went down to Fellowship Hall and they thought he was bringing somebody. He said, no, it's me. And Louis said that he thanked God that he had the uh, whatever it was that caused him to say, what must I do? I think that's the most important question I can ask nowadays to you all. What must I do? And Louis said the second miracle was that he was willing to follow what they said he must do. Some guy said, Louis, obviously you missed something. He said, I would suggest that you get that big book and start with the cover and start reading it over again and studying it and working on it. Obviously you missed something. And after about seven or eight years of sobriety once again, Louis came to that part which said it's easy to rest on your spiritual laurels. He said people always ask him, why did you do it, Louis? And about, after about seven or eight years, he saw in the book, the big book study, 
My, my sponsors have all said, you ought to always be in a big book study. You ought to always be working on a step, you know, and things like that. Great wisdom, I think. But Louis saw that. Well, all we have is a one-day reprieve, based daily reprieve, based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Easy to rest on your spiritual laurels. And Louis said, I saw that, and I knew he had become complacent. Now, I'm here to report to you a great success story in Alcoholics Anonymous. Probably more people in the Canal Valley were able to come back from slips because if Louis could do it, anybody could. He was a great inspiration to people who'd had slips. Before Louis died, we gave Louis his second 22-year chip in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't want you to forget Louis. Louis was a beautiful man, an absolutely beautiful man. So when Louis died, we had some of these made up, and we took his name off. He, he said Louis Southworth, and he would give his uh, a phone number so that people could come and uh, if they needed help. Gave away thousands of these. So we changed it, and we said Louis Southworth, office upstairs. And uh, I put my number and my sponsor, my current sponsor's number on it. Now, I have some of these tonight. I'm going to leave them here. The whole box full. And I'm doing that for Louis Southworth, and I'm doing it for me. And I hope that gets out there on the sea of recovery somewhere, and somebody might realize one day when we start taking ourselves so seriously. My God, loosen up, George. You know? A lady said to me, within 90 days of coming back after my 14-year slip, I went to a conference, didn't even know it was an AA conference, had no idea it was a recovery conference. Out in Bozeman, Montana, I met a guy named Vince out there, an old timer. And a guy named Jess and his wife Jackie. The very first day they asked us to tell a little bit about ourselves, you know. So I started explaining when it got around to me, about 40 people there, Hans Selye's theory of stress, and how I'm a lawyer, if you represent somebody's hurt, there's a concomitant, uh, uh, emotional overlay to the physical injury. If you don't know that, you can't have, you can't. maybe that applies to me. And I read Hans, Hans serious stress. And this beautiful lady came over to me right in front of all those people. And th- these are her very words. You poor, dumb son of a bitch. <laughs> and then she said, and she had love in her eyes. She had tears in her eyes and love in her eyes. Then she said, can't you see that that thinker is going to kill you? I found, I, I put my hat on at noon. I didn't walk out immediately. <laughs> Stay cool, you know. <laughs> and I put my hat down on my head and went back and I said, I came out to here to see her husband, not her. She took my inventory. I've been back about 90 days. I knew you weren't supposed to take anybody's inventory. And I was so sick that I started laughing. I thought, George, she hit it right on the head. You are so bad. I went back and thanked her, and I've thanked her every time I've seen her ever since. A lovely woman. Absolutely lovely woman. She and her husband were taught the 12-step program by Vince out in uh, Bozeman, Montana. Vince uh, had about 35 years when he died. He got sober when he was 45. And Vince probably touched more lives than just about anybody I know. He one time said about the fourth step, he said, when you get to the place, you know, we're sick as our secrets, they say, and I believe, and I've learned. When you get to this place in your life that you can write everything you ever did on a scroll and hang it on the courthouse door and not be worried about it, that is freedom. Vince also said, <laughs> he said he hated to tell anybody how long you've been sober, you know, 30 years or something. He said they might take one look at him and say, it didn't do you a hell of a lot of good, did it? <laughs> That's about the way I am, you know, going to be very reluctant. But I've learned these things from people, sometimes by shock treatment. Sometimes people have the courage. I learned this. Your true friend is not the person who will tell you what you want to hear. Your true friend is the person who will share their experience, pick and hope with you, and tell you what they did, whether it impresses you or not. And people have done that for me, and, and I'm grateful for that. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I drank... On every occasion, I always looked forward to the next time I could drink. I went through school. I'd throw big sobers, you know, and I'd go to church and pray and do all these things, do real well. And then I'd get drunk and stay drunk for every night for months. 
And I wouldn't do well in school, you know. And then I'd have to throw another big sober. And my whole life was just right on the edge. I never went any place for years after I started to work without a bottle of whiskey in the car. Now, I would not drink on the way to work. If I had a deposition to take or something, I wouldn't drink. Had a hearing or something. But boy, on the way home, I would. Always looking for the next football weekend. <laughs> Win a game, lose a game, whatever. Always looking. Friends come into town. Dear friend of mine told me right after I got back to the program, I said, how do you handle this, not going to bars, you know? Well, he said, if you go over to the Holiday Inn because old Joe calls and said he hadn't seen you for 15 years, meet him down there, you know, and all that sort of thing, uh, then you know, and you're spiritually fit, that's probably okay. We can do that sort of thing. But he said, if, uh, he said, as far as I'm concerned, he said, if I go over and sit around the bar waiting to see if old Joe happens to show up one of these days, he said, I'm, you know, <clears throat> so little by little I'm, I'm learning. And, uh, I started working on those steps. God bless Cecil MC. Cecil MC was my first sponsor. And I was sharing, uh, earlier with uh, Pete, uh, <clears throat> I, I am a, a, an entertainer. And I wear an outfit with a big tall hat and all kinds of badges and a suit, uh, uh, tails with badges. And I try to look like, if you remember Professor, uh, backwards, the guy that looked like he was trying to dress up and just missed it. That's the way I tried to, that's the way I try to do my act. You know, it disarms the audience and all that stuff. You know, crazy. <laughs> so I'd been back in the program about two weeks and I was on my way down to, to, uh, Winfield to do a, a show at noon and they had an AA meeting in Shoney's. And they're way back in the back, and you have to walk through Shoney's. You know, here I go in with this outfit on. And my sponsor, the man who later became my sponsor after much, much uh, deliberation, whether he should do it or not. <laughs> the sweetest man who ever lived. Wouldn't have said anything to hurt anybody's feelings for this world. And he, t- he ran a clothing store, a very conservative man, you know. He took one look at me and just exclaimed spontaneously, My God, if that guy can stay sober, anybody can. <laughs> And that's that's kind of the way I was and the way that I am. But you know, in 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 college, uh, I was always on the edge of not making it, of having difficulties. And yet, you know, when I would bear down, I could make it. I was scared at first that I wasn't smart enough to make it. Uh, I'm from Elkview. I always had an inferiority complex about being from Elkview. Those boys in Charleston are looking down their nose at us. I felt inferior. And I found out later, I think they probably are. You know, a lot of them do. But I also found out they've got the same fears I've got. They just come in different forms, you know. And um, so about two drinks of whiskey and I was just as good as any of them. I'll never forget when I got up to Morgantown to school and didn't have to go home to my mother every night. Mothers and wives and school and work always interfered with my drinking, particularly my mother. You imagine being 45 or 43 years old and your mother, you're going over to the pension union and your mother says, come here. And she grabs you by the lapel, you know, and pulls you right over there and you know she's smelling your breath and it's really expensive. Now don't you go over there drinking and tell those ordinary stories and embarrass the family, you know. So I always felt like I wasn't as good as those guys from down in Charleston. Um, that's been a, a tremendous thing for me in AA, is to find out that I'm no better, no worse than anybody else. I did not know that. I'll never forget, I was a freshman in college, and we went to see the Pitt football game, and uh, they had an alumna cocktail party, and my friend said, let's go. And I said, they won't want freshmen over there. Always says, let's go, and you pay a couple bucks and go in, and we'll have a drink or two. I went in, and the next thing I know, I've had about six drinks, and I am explaining to the athletic director of West Virginia University how he ought to be changing the schedule of the football team so we would have better national rankings. (laughs) And he was listening to me. So liquor, I thought, did things for me. In the Army, on the one hand, I got a seven on the efficiency report. On the other hand, I happened to overhear a conversation. Where is Lieutenant Doherty? Well, he's down in tank company this weekend. You better with nothing to do in Korea. I was there after the war. Drink whiskey. Fifteen cents a shot of scotch. And uh, they said, better get him back up here before he gets in the tank again. You know, you'd hear things <laughs> like that. It was well known. 
But I wanted to be a hard-drinking, hard-driving man who always got up the next day was at work, and I prided myself on that. And that's the way that I lived my life. And that's the story. I mean, that is the story of my drinking. And I did things when drinking that I was very, very ashamed of. Uh, I thought that the higher power would not want to hear from me until I got myself clean, totally pure. And then I could go to God, and I wasn't going to be a hypocrite, by golly. When I get myself straightened out. But see, I knew I was going to do these things again, so I couldn't go to God. I had trouble with the second step until I learned. Somebody pointed out to me, hey, George, that's crazy. And the minute they pointed it out, I thought, oh, you know, that is crazy. They said, why don't you ask God to help you get over being that way? I've never thought of that. But I've discovered a very loving God in this program. Uh, Suzanne and I take the third step and the seventh step prayer every day. And on the back of this letter right here from Dr. Young is the third step and seventh step prayer and the promises. There's the men on the bed. Famous man on the bed thing. And here's Dylan Thomas taking his drink. And I happen to notice that there's a woman in the background of that picture. I hadn't noticed that before. It's very appropriate. <laughs> For me, in my case. But I'm not that way anymore. I am not that way anymore. Uh, I see in the book, the way I read it, that they suggest that we continue to work on those steps. I've heard people say, well, once you take them, you don't ever have to take them again. And I hear people say, well, you can work on 10, 11, 12, and that's all you need. Others are just maintenance. That book says over and over and over again, you know, that's the 12 and 12. This has to become a way of life. I have insights today by saying those prayers over and over and over again that I never had in my life. It's amazing to me how things keep getting better and keep opening up to me a whole new vista of life, really life, living life, not just not drinking. That's what I thought it was all about, just not drinking. I've heard guys say, well, I work it my way and I don't take a drink, and I, God, that's good enough for me. <laughs> and what can you say? You know, what can you just share? So we started doing the third. That, those two prayers, I, I would suggest to anybody, read those carefully tonight. Take one of these and read those prayers. Those are the most profound prayers of surrender that I've ever heard in my life. And after doing them now for 20 years, they still say new things to me because my life changes. The fourth step, oh man, close my eyes, meditate, think of my sins. Out in Bozeman, a lady was a counselor, red-headed, <laughs> good-looking. I will meditate and tell her my fourth step, my fifth step. After meditating the fourth, see, all this. It was a sin list is all it was. And she was titillated, and she told she was so titillated, she wasn't in the program. And she told me all about her sins. <laughs> That was not a sincere effort on my part to do the step. I'm serious. I'm very serious. <clears throat> I hurt badly enough. My sponsor, Cecil, kept saying, you know, Cecil believed if it said a number three lead pencil, that you get a number three lead pencil. And if it's a white legal pad, you get a white legal pad with lines. Whatever the book said. One day I sat down and did that four step like the book said. I did one about two or three years later because, believe it or not, Suzanne and I were having some trouble. <laughs> she was not doing right. <laughs> My sponsor, Louie, I went to him about it. He said, you know, Roy said to me back in 1945, Roy had been dead for 20 years, still speaking in AA, you never die. You never die. If you think you're not worth anything, think about that. You will live forever if you really work in this program. That helped, that helped my esteem. So, no, I've got something to say that might be worth something to get somebody up out of that bed. Like, I got up out of that bed. Like, they got me up out of that bed. Louis said, George, Roy said to me, you don't have to have an opinion on every subject. I never heard such a thing. I knew immediately what was driving me nuts. No matter, I thought you were serious when you want to tell me your problems, and I'd tell you what to do, and I'd tell Suzanne what to do. And then I'd tell her again, and she wouldn't do it. I said, can't the woman hear me, you know? 
And I suddenly realized in my personal relationships, people don't need me to tell them the answer. They know the answer. You all know exactly whatever one of you has to do with your problems tonight. You don't need me to tell you. What you need is the warm arms of love to surround you as you could get in any meeting anywhere in the world. We just spent seven these days in Ireland. It's just like over there like it is here. They've got the same fears, the same isolation, the same loneliness. We need somebody who's there for us. And Suzanne and I have gotten along much better since I realized that what she needs is for me to hold her and tell her I love her. And I'm with you in this mess. And that was a profound lesson from Roy, passed on 40 years later, through Louis. And one day, I needed the fourth step. So I sat down, I went to the cynical house and got a pencil. I outlined that book, every word it said about how to work a fourth step. And I worked it on Suzanne. And I see Dr. Paul says in his wonderful uh, chapter in the big book that uh, he worked that step on Max and things got better. So I believe that no matter what my problem is, and they'll continue to happen, that make those lists. I put down resentments. Everybody's got resentments. I wasn't bothered by that at all. You know, the fears. I thought, God, I'm afraid fears are my problem. Fears are driving me nuts. I didn't know that until I worked this step, like my sponsor said, like the book said. And do you know that I was halfway through that until I met a man I had never met before. And I liked him. I had never liked myself before. That fourth step unlocked the key to me. I was no longer the frightened boy from Elkview trying to convince everybody that everything's okay. I can come to you now, not with ideas, but tell you my hurting. And I get relief because I'm just like you. So I worked the other steps, and I've learned to meditate. The, you know, I can just say a, a little phrase over and over and over again. It says, through prayer and meditation, you know, it says that right there in the 11th step. And what happens to me is when I say that long enough, when I'm filled with anxiety, two things come to me after a relatively short period of time. One is that it's all okay. And the second is you're not in charge of anything. So I work that 11 step regularly. I go to bed at night meditating. I wake up in the middle of the night filled with those fears. And I meditate and go back to sleep. And I would recommend to any of you, work on meditation. I can just tell you my experience and strength and hope is it works. It helps me. And 12, of course, you know, to try to, in all our affairs, man, that's a, that's a, that's a boatload. But you know it is worth it. I want to finish by sharing one thing with you. I had said in the tape that you all heard down at Clifty Falls, I said this there, that if God would say to me today, I'm going to take you, I believe I would say, God, it's been a wonderful life. But right before they carried me in the Valley Clinic, if God had said, I'm going to take you home today, I would have, in my deepest heart, Although I wouldn't want, have wanted God to know it, I would have said, you certainly dealt me from a short deck. It's been a whole, awful life. You know? Now, in March, I went into the doctor. I wondered what would happen if I really got in a position of having to face that sort of thing. You know, I've been doing all this talking about it. All this George is the peace man at peace with the universe. And my little Irish doctor, a lady, wonderful internist, said, sit down in that chair. I'm going to admit you in the hospital. I said, I can't go to the hospital. i got a show to do Saturday, Friday night, and i got to go to court Friday morning. She says, you won't do it if you're dead. Next thing you know, um, they did a catheterization. Next thing you know, a week later, I'm going to, the doctor wanted me to wait a week for a particular doctor to do open-heart surgery or bypass surgery on me. I had a week to wait, and I thought, good Lord, let's do it today. Let's get it over with. But the doctor was out of town. So I, had, I took my doctor's advice and waited. I'm here to report to you, and this is going to be my final shot tonight. I'm here to report to you that I did not have one moment's anxiety. Now, that's if I happen to me again, I might have it. But I've said the third step and the seventh step prayer and the Holy Spirit prayer with Suzanne every day. The morning, well, we went, took the family out to dinner. They referred to it as the Last Supper, you know. <laughs> and we could laugh, you know. And the morning I was to be operated on, 
a man in the mustard seed group was an Episcopal priest, and he came 5 o'clock in the morning and uh, said some prayers. And I said, would you mind? He's a newcomer in the program. And I wanted to 12-step him a little bit. And I said, you know, I appreciate your prayers. But would you mind if we said the third step and the seventh step prayer together in the Holy Spirit prayer? Uh, those those prayers are right there on that sheet if anybody would like to have them. And I was in perfect peace right up to the time they wheeled me away. They did six bypasses, lapped an artery over some place, which they say is real good because if they all go bad, that will help me. I don't want to know much more about it than that. <laughs> Two weeks later, I did a show at the Cultural Center. They had to, They said, we'll let you do that show if things work out well, but somebody will have to hand you your guitar you uh won't be able to stand up and play. I said, God, I can milk that. I played with my family. I can use somebody hands you your guitar. Poor guy, you know. <laughs> and since that time, it's, I've been going strong. I exercise now. I uh, didn't do that for years. The AA program is the best stress reduction I've ever had in my life. It has all worked out beautifully. And I'm here to tell you that I'm the most blessed man alive. Suzanne has MS. I've got a heart condition. I'm diabetic and all that. We went to Ireland for 17 days, and it was beautiful. Didn't plan anything. And God put one beautiful person after another in front of us. Love, absolute love. Irishmen hugging each other, men and women. Can you believe that? And Suzanne's daughter says it's because you all put out an aura of love and acceptance. And that's probably what it is. And I owe that all to this program. Had I... I had to face that week-long wait when I was a drinking man. I don't know how much whiskey it would have taken me to gut through it, but it would have been gallons, believe me. And you know what that would have done to my chances. But I truly believe that if God took me home, that kind, loving God was going to look after me. So if he took me home on that day, fine. If I woke up and I'm still here, fine. Now that is peace that surpasses understanding. And that's what I've been looking for all my life, and I think that's what Dr. Young was saying to Bill W. Uh, I was going to end up with a song, and I think I'll do it anyway. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> it's all about love. Ten years ago, the wall came down in Germany. And I think this program is about walls coming down. And a guy named, a kid named Arlo Guthrie, Woody's boy. Went over there with all the folk singers in the world. Some 40,000 people there celebrating the wall coming down. And by the time they got to Arlo, they'd sung all the folk songs. And he said he had to sing a folk song because Pete Singer was running it. And he just could not not sing a folk song. <laughs> so he chose a song written by, uh, sung by that great folk hero, Elvis. <laughs> and I heard him do this song in Charleston, West Virginia. And I've ended all my entertainments with this song ever since because it speaks something from the heart. And I'd like to end tonight with this. You'll know the song. Please join me when it comes to you. Please join in. Wise men say only fools rush in. Here we go now. But I can help falling in love with you. If I stay would it be a sin? Yeah. 
throne now. Take my hand. Here we go.